Good morning. It's Wednesday, November 9th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, the program where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thank you, friends, for listening. If you find this program edifying, do me a favor, tell your friends, encourage them to tune in over the air if they're in the St. Louis area, online at kfuo.org, or through any podcasting app. Also, I love hearing from you, and I answer every email I receive. So send me your questions or comments to pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. Every Friday, I feature one of your letters at the top of the show. Thy Strong Word is underwritten by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. They translate and publish biblical and catechetical material for people all over the world. Learn more about their great work at lhfmissions.org. Well, we are two episodes into our new topic, which is the book of Exodus. We are at chapter two. Here we're introduced to Moses, a man whom God cared for and looked after from his birth until his last days. Born a slave but raised as royalty, the patriarch Moses would become an incredibly important figure in our salvation history. But he wasn't perfect, as today's text will demonstrate. But despite his sin, God had great plans for him. And with me this morning to help us dive into this this part of our history in chapter two is the Reverend Keith Haney. He's assistant to the president for missions human care, and stewardship in the LCMS Iowa District West. He's also the author of One Nation Under God, Healing Racial Divides in America. He's one of the contributors for the book Words of Strength and Promise, Devotions for Youth. Both of those are available through Concordia Publishing House at cph.org. He also has a podcast, a popular podcast, Becoming Bridge Builders, that delves into issues from racial reconciliation to education innovation, justice reform, Um, And all these types of things that are becoming hot topics today and need to be addressed from a a solid uh, confessional principle. So, Pastor Haney, you are a busy guy. Thank you for taking the time to join us on Thy Strong Word. It's my pleasure. Welcome. We're glad to be here. So, what do you, first of all, what do you do in the LCMS Iowa District West, right? You're the assistant of the president, but what, what kind of ministry are you doing for God's people up there in Iowa or down there in Iowa from my perspective? Sure. Really some exciting things. We have been blessed in Iowa with a lot of diversity, maybe more than people really realize. So we have we have started this year just alone ministry to Sudanese, the Dinka and Noor uh, uh, speaking population. We have Hispanic ministry in Western Iowa as well as the Des Moines area. That's really starting to take off and flourish. Uh, we get a chance to work with a lot of rural and small town churches. Uh, Iowa West is about 185 congregations, and 65 congregations, I should say. And we have of those, uh, 80% are rural and small town ministries. So they're they're really unique ministries, and we get a chance to. And I was just just this last week. I was out in, uh, visiting small towns and kind of going around meeting people, having a dinner at a local pub with a pastor. And it was just a really just wonderful, warm people. So the ministry here is diverse and interesting and uh, exciting because we get a chance to really meet uh, God's people on the ground and and work together with them so closely to kind of help them better reach their ever-changing communities. So much for being just fly over country, right? Lots of stuff going on. 
Well, tell me a little bit about your podcast. Uh, it sounds like you're uh, touching some subjects that have become incredibly divisive in some ways in our uh, in our culture today. Yeah, the podcast kind of grew out of my Bible study. I wanted to keep the conversation about race going and relevant. So I started this podcast, Becoming Bridge Builds, with the intent of bringing on various guests with different opinions and different expertise and to have a an open, honest conversation about what they bring to the table about the whole issues of race in America and education and innovation. And I always warn my guests, I'm going to approach this from a Christian perspective. We may not agree on the worldview, but I want to hear your view. So it really is a, a honest conversation with people about what's going on and what they know. And we've come to some amazing aha moments um, on the show. People who may not agree, but will come to the idea that you know, there's a there's a different way. If, if we can just communicate with each other and, and respect each other, we can really make a difference in our world. Isn't that true? I mean, a lot of the divisiveness that goes on, or at least the the obstacles to addressing that divisiveness, is because people just uh, don't listen to each other anymore. They they have already decided who you are and what they think you'll have to say based on the groups or categories they put themselves and you in. And so, yeah, I don't want to hear from that person. It everyone has something you know worthy of hearing if you just sit down and listen to their story. And again, you don't have to agree with everything, but yeah, I think that's great. And I'm so thankful to have you out there in the conversation because I know that you're a, a faithful a Christian, faithful Lutheran pastor, and I'm excited to have you on the show too. I could talk about that all day, and I bet you could too. <laughs> but I suppose we better head into Exodus chapter two. But before we do that, would you start our time together in prayer? Um, my pleasure. Dear Father, we give you thanks for the opportunity to come together and to delve into your word, to have your Holy Spirit guide and direct our conversations, our thoughts, our meditations, our conversation as we kind of unpack this amazing story of Moses and how you intervened in his life and crafted and created and developed and raised up for yourself a leader who would go in to rescue your people from Egypt. So looking forward to talking more about his life and how you impacted that journey that you took him on. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, anything you want to say to set the scene, maybe um, address kind of some background before we head into the text, because this is a passage that most Sunday schoolers are going to be familiar with. Uh, the birth of Moses, uh, him being plucked out of the river. Um, we all, if we've been to Sunday school, we, we have this image engraved in our head about what we think it looks like. Uh, but, you know, maybe maybe we should start just a, a few steps back before we dive right in. Anything you want to bring to the table? Well, what struck me is I, as I studied this, and, I, and I've read Exodus 2 so many times, as you mentioned before, we've, we've seen them in our, in our Bible studies. We, we have the picture of the baby in the basket in the water rescued by the princess. But what I really struck me as I studied this was the way God prepared this prophet for the ministry he was going to do. And it, this moment took 400 years uh, of God, <laughs> you know, as a promise he made to Abraham when he said, you're going to inherit this, this land flowing with milk and honey, but it's going to be four generations before your ancestors actually get to that land and inherit that land. So you, you see that God has a very patient, long-range view of history that we don't have the ability or the access to see as we look at things. We only see things in a brief, you know, 
our time frame. So we only, you know, we have a very limited tomorrow. We have a, so we have a microwave kind of personality and microwave view of yeah, history. Oh, but yeah. God, God's got a, a crock pot vision of history. So. <laughs> I like that. I never heard that before, but it's so true. You know, we, especially in our culture, is an instant gratification culture, right? We, we, we want the uh, the murder solved in the hour that it takes the show to present it. You know, we we think that things happen instantly because we've been conditioned by movies and TV and our buffet culture that we want things what we want and when we want them. And God has consistently shown Himself to, as you said, have the long range view. On this program, we just finished a couple weeks ago the book of Daniel. Talk about having some long range views. You know, and Daniel's getting prophecies of incredibly specific historical events that won't happen for hundreds of years after Daniel, but did happen hundreds of years ago that point forward to things that will happen, well, who knows when, whenever the Lord decides. So it's amazing. Uh, I mean, it shouldn't be, right? Because God's God, but it right. still kind of astounds us because we are so unlike God. Now, right. I don't want to put you on the spot, uh, but I just, it just popped into my head. What do you think Moses thought about writing these accounts down, right? So we understand that Moses is the author of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, of which, of course, Exodus is one of them. So Moses is being inspired to record these events, but he's also the subject of some of these events. I wonder what that made him, you know, I just wonder, I don't know that we know, but wonder what that made him think, how, what he thought about that. Well, being able to look back at your life and go, this is what God was doing is, is a wonderful perspective because you don't get in the moment what God is preparing you for, but being able to look back at the end of your life or even wherever you wrote this and whatever stage of his life, people look back and say, oh, now I see God's hand in this. I, I can look back at my own life and go, God, why'd you make me go through that at the time? But looking back, I'm going, oh, I see now. It prepared me for something I needed to be able to do later on. And this was all part of your plan. And you have a greater appreciation for it when you look back at your life and can assess what God was doing through that. And having God to help you to see that in more detail as right. he's inspired writing of that even helped Moses, I'm sure, more to appreciate what God was doing in his life. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a great answer because I hadn't really considered that. I mean, what a, I just, I was just awestruck by the idea that, you know, here is Moses and he's reflecting on the things of his life. And as you just pointed out, the Holy Spirit's giving him not only a reminder of the events, but the intentionality behind why he was going through them. It's just amazing. Well, let's read the text. This is going to be Exodus chapter two, verses one through 10. And I'll be reading from the English standard version. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made out of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? 
And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Well, that's our text, brother. Um, interesting, right? I, I just love, and I don't want to jump the gun on you, but I love how you know Moses ends up back with his own mother. And not only is she now able to, I mean, it's a sad, com- sad ending coming up when she has to give him away, but not only is she able to nurse him, she's getting paid for the privilege of doing it, which I just think is great. That um, is amazing. But, but anyway, uh, take us from the beginning, brother. You know, what's going on here? Well, I guess what what strikes me strikes strikes me right away is, first of all, the, the heart of this is that Moses was born to godly parents, and you think about what it had to be, what it meant to be married in that setting. You you were in captivity. I'm sure it tested your faith to even think about entering into a holy matrimony like marriage, when everything around you was falling apart. But but they thought it was so important that they committed themselves. Moses' parents, to be godly parents. And we know the context of of Exodus where babies were being murdered. And so to save that baby's life, and we live in a kind of a culture now where human life is not valued, especially the life of an infant, we saw these parents say, we know that this is important that this child be born because we value life. So you see that right off the bat in Exodus 2, the value this godly family put toward that child's life. And did everything possible to save that life, even knowing not what what God had in mind for the overall picture for them. To me, that stands out as just a a powerful testimony to the value that they placed on life. Yeah, she had no expectations that God was going to, you know, provide for little Moses. And she had no expectations that she was going to succeed in her plan. All she knew is that she loved the child. And as you said, respected life. It's such a great connection to make. And so she hid him three months. And and it says when she hid him no longer, I, I'm assuming that at this point he's just making too much noise or people are noticing. Um, right. I, you know, I, I can't understand the structure perfectly on how it was set up. I know they lived in their own communities here, but I assume that they had people walking through and it was just too difficult. So she 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 does this where she puts him in the little ark. But yeah, she I think that is an amazing point. And, and we're told by Moses that, you know, it's Levite and Levi, you know, they're from the house of Levi, which foreshadows a little bit of the role of the Levites coming down the pike uh, with God. But even taking a step back into chapter one, which we discussed yesterday, uh, he was uh, he was his life was threatened because the Pharaoh was threatened. Pharaoh was worrying about this growing population, and he was worried that they would, you know, amass such strength that they could overthrow him. And uh, so he, you know, makes this order. Well, connecting it as you did to today, you know, the, what is the worry now? Well, if if we have too much, too many people in the population, then then you know the the climate will increase or or have a have continuing problems or you know well it's the resources on the land or we have all these different issues whatever they are that people worry about uh, maybe it's even on a personal level somebody's worried that they can't provide for a child so they have been convinced that it's better to end that child's life before they're born you know there's all these connections and here 
we see someone in the worst of situations and yet she they obviously trust god enough to you know not obey what we would ne- what we'd later find out is the fourth commandment right exactly and it's interesting to me that the threat for pharaoh were men you know in some other cultures we've seen that in china the threat is not men but it's women, you know, right. so it's we but but whatever it is, the culture is always threatened by babies. And I always the thing that struck me most about this was, and especially today, is why are children such a threat is is the thing that keeps popping in my mind. Um, but we see that time and time again that we just don't value that. But this family valued life so much that they I'm, I'm sure every time Moses cried, there was a sinking feeling in the house because it's like, will we be discovered? Will some parent whose child was taken, you know, turn on, turn us in or report us? I mean, there had to be this constant three months living in fear and torment as you just worried every time the child made a noise that you're going to be discovered. Yeah. And so she literally leaves it in God's hands, right? right? Puts him, puts him in the basket well, let's move on with the story then, you know. So she puts Moses into this little basket of bold rushes. Um, do you make a lot about connecting that to the ark uh, in terms of, you know, Noah? I mean, I know a lot of people do. I kind of do. I just wonder your thoughts on it. Well, I think everything God does is intentional. I mean, there's, <laughs> uh, we we see the connections because it was a boat that God used to save Noah, and it was a little boat that God used eventually to save Israel. And it's no coincidence that, you know, he was it was in Egypt again. And, you know, out of Egypt, I've called my son. And you see that uh, down with Jesus, too. So there, there is never, I think, anything that God does that just happened to be that way. Everything is intentional and has meaning. Right. And, of course, you know, Moses uses the same word as he records here, the same Hebrew word anyway, for basket it is ark in both counts. So there definitely is that connection. And we make that connection today about being rescued or at least kept safe from the world in the Ark of the Holy Church, you know, in the language we use at baptism. So, yeah, obviously there's all these great connections. And I, I just like to point those out whenever I can, because as you said, you know, God doesn't do these things on accident. They're, they're right, speaking exactly. a larger story than we can see. I definitely agree. And those are always those are meaningful for us because we can see the hand of God in the Ark. We see the hand of God and this arc that Moses is in too, that God is still moving in throughout history to make sure that everything God intends to accomplish gets accomplished. So it says in four that his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Uh, not the mom, right? The sister. I find that a curious detail. And I wonder because the, the mom might be suspicious, you know, <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. This is your child, isn't it? But the sister is like, oh, I just have to be walking by and look, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so the girl was probably less threatening than the mom would have been. Well, that makes sense. And it certainly makes sense in the narrative of what happens because, you know, then she gets to pop up and say, oh, I'll, I'll help you. I'll help you take care of that. <laughs> right. Yeah. So the daughter of Pharaoh comes down to bathe, and it says, while her young women walk beside the river, she sees the basket. She sends her servants down there. Um, sometimes I think I've, I've, I get the idea that the daughter of the Pharaoh is not exactly on board with her father's 
you know, edicts and commands here. Perhaps she has a little bit more of a sympathetic heart. Um, that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is, well, there's also this idea that sometimes the the children of foreigners are brought into the households to become servants themselves, even though it's not necessarily the role that Moses would end up playing. So, you know, it's hard to know her motivations just from the text. And of course, really, her motivations don't matter to the whole story. But it, I think it's interesting to reflect on, you know, why does she say, oh, well, let's draw that child out. Um, perhaps it's her motherly instinct. You know, let's draw the child out as opposed to, I don't know, dumping the basket over. Yeah, I like to I like to believe in my heart that <laughs> she she understood what she saw the the human suffering of those mothers and what was happening with their babies being killed. And and something inside of her said, This isn't right. You're right. The mother instinct does have to kick in. She's she's apparently childbearing age. And you have to put yourself in those situations of, you know, if this was me and I was a Hebrew, young Hebrew woman, because I'm sure they were all about the same age when they were, you know, having babies, that what if that was my child that was taken from me and murdered because my father is worried about population growth and control. Um, so maybe God used that that tenderness in her heart to turn her to think about someone besides herself. I think looking back, too, at, at, at the mom, and this just occurred to me, um, I said that she didn't obey the fourth commandment, which would be to honor your father and your mother, and by extension, all those in authority. Now, naturally, the commandments have not yet been given. But it, it kind of it kind of just dawned on me that in, she really didn't break the commandment. She actually maliciously complied with it. Um, and, and this occurred to me because of the, the, the uh, concordance here. It, it takes us back to Exodus 1.22, it says, then Pharaoh commanded all of his people that every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So in a way, she actually kept the the word, the letter of the law, while certainly not honoring the spirit of it. She maliciously complied. I'm supposed to throw my baby into the river? Well, here, I'm going to put him in a basket, put him in the river. And then, of course, the rest of her trust is God. And then in this great uh, divine providence, Pharaoh's daughter happens upon him. Yeah. Anything else in this text that stands out to you? Well, you could say he was beyond the age where he'd be thrown to the river because he was a little older than most babies. So he, he wasn't a newborn. So in that regard, she did keep the commandment or the, the edict. <laughs> right. Sure. Oh, that's true, too. That's true, too. Um, but, you know, she gives him this chance for life, a hope, praying, I assume, that God would somehow, in, in no way that she could expect, preserve him. Um, and then and then Miriam fishes him out and takes him back. Um, why do you think that Pharaoh let uh, her keep him? I mean, you know, she certainly got back to the house and or the palace, you know, and maybe she doesn't see her dad often. But at some point, he's going to see that she has this extra child. Hey, where'd <laughs> this guy come from? Oh, he's one of the Hebrew children. Oh, well, I, I had I had a law about that. You know, I wonder why. I wonder why that, uh, you know, her compassion for him certainly didn't wear off on the Pharaoh. So I wonder why he let her keep him. Well, being a father with two daughters. When when my daughter asks for something, my sons too, but my daughters particularly, they have a they have that soft spot in your father in a father's heart, and I could just see her, you know, would I want to break my daughter's heart in if she really wants this? Uh, 
Um, so maybe the, as a father who cares for his daughter, he just has that fatherly compassion to understand this is important to her. And if it's important to her, it won't do me any harm. No one has to know uh, where this child came from. Um, it's in the household of the, of, of the Pharaoh. So chances are people aren't going to know the whole story or situation. So, Well, that's true, too. That's true, too. And, you know, the Pharaoh's daughter certainly didn't keep him immediately after drawing him out. She sends him uh, to some random recently uh, recent woman who's given birth, which in this case, because of God's providence and the sister Miriam ended up being his actual mother. But, you know, I suppose that the uh, the Pharaoh's daughter didn't want him to experience well, I mean, infant mortality is an issue that she's dealing with here. So, you know, you wean him. I can't feed him because I've not had any children lately. Um, but we also want to make sure he's healthy before I take him in. Uh, so there's a lot of there's a lot of planning going into what's going on. The the Pharaoh's daughter isn't flighty. She isn't like, oh, look, a, a pet that I can have. I mean, she has genuine compassion, uh, as Moses indicates here. And, you know, this is certainly she's being moved by God. And we see that, too. You know, she doesn't believe in the true God, except God still uses her for the benefit of his own people. And I think there's a connection today as we look at people and we think, well, you know, here's someone who doesn't believe in God, so I don't want to have anything to do with them. Well, that's the wrong attitude because certainly, A, God desires all people to come to the truth and be saved. But B, God even uses unbelievers for the benefit of, of his creation. And so I think we see that in an example, sort of in a microcosm kind of way in this situation. Here, God is using a pagan, which may be a nice generic term, rulers to care for and eventually uh, redeem his people. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the bigger picture here, too, is this was all part of God's plan of preparing the prophet. He wanted to make sure he understood how the inner workings of the palace were. Because uh, he had to come back eventually and, of course, confront Pharaoh. But he was going to be trained in the best of the Egyptian schools and uh, understand the Egyptian way of life. And uh, he was one, probably ahead of his class. And so he, under, he, he learned from the very best of what God had in mind for him as this was part of his preparation period process. You know, it never occurred to me that part that you just mentioned about him being raised in the in the palace and and would give him this advantage when later he would need to go in there or to understand the inner workings of how it all all comes to pass. And um, well, you know, I never considered that. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, and and you can tell that his training came in handy. He knew exactly how the inner workings of the palace were. So anything else about this text before we go to our break? We have just a couple minutes left. Um, she names him Moses. That's a Hebrew name. Uh, interesting. Uh, I, 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 did she just do that because he is one of the Hebrews? I wonder. You know, again, I think it's what God put on our heart. You know, <laughs> here is, here's what his name will be, and here's why. Um, because we plucked him out of water. And to me, the beautiful thing about it is, as a Lutheran, we we have this wonderful understanding of the element of water. And the element of water is is about cleansing and redeeming and, and buying back. And so here is this, this man, Moses, who was plucked out of the water, like the waters of baptism, because um, he was going to redeem God's people. And to me, it's just this beautiful um, sacramental picture of Moses' life. 
Yes, absolutely. That connection is so important for us as we remember our own baptisms and how God has redeemed us from our enemies, sin, death, and Satan. Well, I'll tell you what, brother, we need to take a break. So listeners, don't go anywhere. When we come back, Pastor Haney and I will continue our discussion of Exodus chapter 2. We'll see you on the other side. On America's college campuses, doors are open to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. The number of international students studying at American schools has more than quadrupled over the past decade. For many of these young men and women, it's their first time living in a free society where they can ask questions about Christianity. You can help answer their questions. Go to lhfmissions.org and partner with the Lutheran Heritage Foundation to translate good Lutheran books into languages these students can read and understand. lhfmissions.org Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Keith Haney, Assistant to the President for Missions, Human Care, and Stewardship in the LCMS Iowa District West. That's a mouthful, brother. I know you're doing good work out there. (laughs) Before uh, uh, the break, we were talking about just the amazing ways in which God was had his hand in history to take Moses, who by all rights as an infant, Uh, should have uh, found death, but he brought him now to the palace of the king of the Egyptians, the Pharaoh. Uh, Verses 11 through 22 um, are a different matter. He's all grown up and and, uh, an event happens. So we're going to read those texts and and see how we can uh, make with it. Here we go, starting with verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, He went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. And she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. All right, thus endeth our text, at least for the moment. Um, just a, I think this is a wild story because we have the uh, Moses living in the palace. He goes out and you can tell his heart is for his people. And, but he does something that he's not supposed to do, right? We don't condone what Moses did. Uh, take us through that, brother. 
You know, that's an interesting thing here, because I'm wondering, did Moses internally know that he was a Hebrew, and did he stand up for the slave who was being attacked because he knew deep in his heart he was a Hebrew? Or was it because he just saw injustice and Moses stood in the face of the gap because he he felt an injustice was being served? Because if you jump down to the next interaction, just the next day, he sees two Israelite men arguing, and he jumps in to inter- intercede on their behalf. And then you see the third time in that one little short section where the shepherds are mistreating uh, the women, and he jumps in again. Is it just Moses' personality that he sees conflict and he wants to get involved? Or did he, had a, on a much wider scale, just have the kind of personality that's like, we should not have this conflict I feel like it's my job to bring peace. So it's kind of like you can't really, there's those three different things or three different instances where you got, you know, uh, Hebrew and uh, Egyptian to to Hebrews, and then you have foreigners. So each time he jumps in because he sees an injustice. Well, and you gave us a couple different options. If I could give the Lutheran answer, I might say yes, (laughs) right? But but more specifically to what you're saying, I, I wonder if he knew where he come from. I, I don't think he wouldn't have known. I mean, he's grown at this point. He's been in the uh, Pharaoh's house, but certainly there have been situations where he may have wanted to be treated like an Egyptian. And then they say they remind him where he's from. You know, it's like you may live here, but you're not from around here. <laughs> and I, I say this as having uh, grown up in the South and have moved as a child. And even though I was a child and had lived my whole life in North Carolina, once I moved from the center of North Carolina to the Western part of North Carolina, there were plenty of people in the Western part who said, yeah, you're not from around here, <laughs> even though I was right. still technically one of them. So I, I suspect, and obviously I'm just thinking off the top of my head that, that he'd been put in his place to know where he came from. If, if not, you know, used as a, as a, as a as a way to maybe harm his emotions, I, I don't, and we don't know, but I think it's absolutely clear, demonstrated by these three options that you illustrate, these three incidents that you illustrate, that he is one who is a peacemaker. Right? God has drawn him to this motivation. You know, he's 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 not a peacemaker because, well, you know, you know, he he gets anything out of it. Right, because he gets himself in trouble, but he just can't help but feel and be empathetic for those who are in persecution, which makes him the perfect guy for what God has planned for him. Exactly, and you see that heart in him as he tries to stand in the gap for those who are less fortunate, those who are um, under attack, and he 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 stands in to be a champion for them. I think that's just a powerful testimony mm-hmm. to the the kind of godly parents and upraising upbringing that that pharaoh that i mean moses had because you think about where he grew up in he grew up in a culture and around people that didn't really have a whole lot of respect for the israelites so to to have that heart was something that was definitely outside of him Uh, we would say otherworldly in terms of this is how god places that into you not something that is born that that you develop because of the people you're raised with so he had a good heart despite where he was raised (laughs) Absolutely. You know, and, and in this first incident where he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and then, you know, he says one of his people, right? So the Holy Spirit has said that at some point he's made this connection. 
or he's telling us it's one of his people, but we already know that. Regardless, I get the impression that what is happening here isn't even permissible. Uh, even if uh, any, anybody else would have saw it, it's, it's not permissible regardless. Just because the Hebrew is who he is and the Egyptian is who he is, um, I get the impression that this is going above the way they would normally mistreat the people, if that makes sense. So I think even the Egyptian is doubly wrong. He's wrong in the sense that he's part of a culture that's oppressing an entire you know race of people, but he's also wrong because he's going the extra mile to be uh, uh, hurtful and abrasive to this particular Hebrew. And so you know the the uh, when Moses steps up to exercise judgment, it's ironic that the later the the the, the Jew, the Hebrew looks at him and says, "Oh, well, who made you a prince?" and a judge over us. And he could have answered, uh, Pharaoh, <laughs> or at the very least, Pharaoh's daughter. You don't know who I am. Uh, but then rewinding, then if he really is the essentially a prince, you know, he has some authority, it seems, then he could probably discipline an Egyptian for, for going above and beyond what he's allowed to do. But it's not a capital offense, so he still has done something wrong. And, and that's how the word gets out. And of course, we don't know exactly how, but certainly someone saw. But if you go back to Genesis 1, you, you got to keep this in perspective too, that Pharaoh oppressed them on purpose. He wanted to break them. And so I'm wondering if, if this um, overseer got that okay, because this is what Pharaoh wants. Pharaoh wants us to make their life difficult. And, so he probably felt empowered by the fact that he did. What I find interesting about this too is you would think that because the what it was happening was pleasing to Pharaoh, why was he so upset with Moses? Because if he really was a prince in the household, he, a prince probably has a lot more leeway. So if you're going to do something like that, you know, you're a prince. He's like, it, it wasn't good. We have a conversation. But why did Pharaoh overreact and immediately go to you have to mm. kill, we have to kill Moses because this this is one of his own. This is one of the one of the royal family, so to speak. You don't turn on the royal family unless I wonder if Pharaoh is thinking. We now we see where his loyalties lie. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know He's that not actually one of us that makes that makes a lot more sense than what I was thinking because yeah, if you then look at it as well, it's not a crime for an Egyptian to beat a Hebrew at all. I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense to to harm the people who you rely on you see what i'm saying like for them to go around killing slaves is not uh, from a purely uh, pragmatic point of view is not a, a good practice for them except of course to enforce uh, uh, their authority and to frighten and and demoralize them so in this case yeah you know moses didn't have any or at least we're not given privy to any uh, knowledge of what the situation was. He just reacts. He looks, he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. The fact that he points out that the Hebrew is one of his people. Yeah, it makes sense. Clearly what's going on here is that he is reacting to a situation where people are being harmed. But in the next situation, when it's two Hebrews, he's sure to point out that it was the one he addressed was the one in the wrong. Right. So, so, 
even when it's two Hebrews, it's not as though it's just generic. I don't like to see people fighting, but there is a, there's a justice thing here. So the, the Hebrew who is wrong, he addresses, you know, why are you striking your companion? And in the Hebrew language, the word used for the Egyptian, you know, giving like a death blow to the Hebrew is the same word that um, is used of Moses when he struck the, the Egyptian down. So we see that Moses ends up, he just did what he then is trying to break up the others from doing. So I, I'm just trying to think, what is God telling us in a more broad sense about justice and how to treat other people? Certainly there's a better way. Yeah, and we like to sometimes say, you know, it was, it was, his, was his anger righteous anger with the Hebrew, I mean, and, and the Egyptian? No, because you went too far with that. You, right, there were probably different ways to handle that. But it's, it was commendable that you wanted to help, but there's a right and a wrong way to help. And you lose credibility when you go too far because you saw that in the next case. It's like all of a sudden now you're trying to do the right thing again, but because you went too far the first time in your justice, which wasn't justice at all, you have now created a, a pain among you know, the, your, your, your credibility in terms of being a, an advocate for justice has now been impacted in your next situation. And I also think as we look into how Pharaoh responds, Pharaoh is responding appropriately if you understand just how, just how nervous he is, just how paranoid he is over the increasing population of the Hebrews. He can't be comfortable with Moses, you know, hanging out in the palace, regardless of how he got there. So, you know, it very well could have been that even if Moses as the prince could have had the authority to uh, exercise a capital punishment on someone, which also I don't think is found in the Egyptian culture at this time, but still, you know, this might just been, you know what? Yes. All right, fine. We're going to take out Moses. Finally, we, we have something. He's just grabbing it as a pretense. So that's why the Pharaoh, when he hears of it, he sees, okay, this is time to get rid of Moses. And he seeks to kill Moses. And that's when he flees. And, and Moses could have come back and said, hey, look, you know, I'm, I'm trying to protect your investment. <laughs> you know? well, well, and that's kind of what I was trying to say earlier, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> and then Pharaoh would have acted differently. But somehow, I wonder again if Pharaoh was threatened by Moses' loyalty. Because again, yeah. is, is this a sign of your, your true Hebrew colors are coming out and you're going to be an advocate for them if you ever get to be in charge? So you now are a threat to the kingdom and you must be eliminated. Yeah, I think you're 100% correct on that. And that and that de de definitely makes more sense. So when we go in then to verse 16, though, he flees. He goes into the land of Midian. He sits down by the well. And now we have this third incident where the priest of Midian has seven daughters. They're filling their troughs. Uh, and he comes and he rescues them. And then verse 19, when, he, when they go to tell the dad, they say, an Egyptian has delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds. So they identify him as an Egyptian, likely because of the way he looked, I would say, right? Most likely. But interesting that the Midian part comes in, because the, the significance of Midian to me is really telling. Midian, of course, was Abraham's, one of Abraham's sons. Midian were the people who sold Joseph into slavery and brought him to Egypt. So there's that tie there. And so the Midian connection now ties Moses back to the patriarchs. 
And and so you see this, this circle here, this perfect circle of God saying, go back to your inherit to your heritage and learn where your people came from. Yeah, that really is an interesting connection I hadn't considered before. And and the, he he also has two names for what it's worth. Um Roy, Royel or Ruel or uh Jethro as I think it's a little bit more common. But yeah, we have this guy who connects back to Abraham. And we know what the future is for Moses. He's to shed any sort of loyalty he may have had to Pharaoh, which he's demonstrated that he's easily separated from that by instances of injustice. And yeah, he ends up being the perfect guy for what God has in store. And yeah, that connection back to his own people, that's really important because he's, he's been separated from his heritage. And by reconnecting with it, He's able to then empathize with their plight. And he's going to need that empathy and sympathy because, A, he didn't grow up as an indentured slave as they did. And, B, they're going to resist him. <laughs> when he goes and tries to uh, give them the message from God, they're, they're not going to uh, be favorable to that for a little while. So he's going to meet resistance in two different ways. And so, yeah, I, I love that. I love thinking about how you know they bring him to the father as an Egyptian but then um, he gives her, gives him rather, one of his daughters, and he's reconnecting with where he's from in that way. And the other neat thing about Moses' life is it's broken into three quarters, three perfect quarters. He spent 40 years as a prince in Egypt, 40 years as a shepherd in Midian, and 40 years leading, leader, leading Israel. So you got, you got this, this beautiful symmetry of his life. Yeah. Now, with the... Why do you think that he gave Zipporah to Moses? We're talking about Jethro or sure. Raul, the, the priest of Midian. You know, it, it seems a little hmm, it seems a little shallow to say, um, thanks for saving my daughters from the, the shepherds who were being jerks. Uh, here, have one. obviously time has passed. He's been dwelling with these folks. He's sojourning with them. Um, Enough time has passed, not only to him to build relationships and marry her, but also to have a son. At the same time, marriages weren't about love. It wasn't about falling in love and then marrying someone you love. That's sort of an invention of the 19th century. It was about um, uh, getting married and then, uh, hopefully later, you know, it, you know, coming together in in a great deal of love for one another, but you know, the father would have had this authority to do that. Uh, but I wonder what the motivation was. We go back to the the stories of Jacob and Esau and how they got their bride. They went back and they worked alongside the father in law to be until they mm-hmm. earned the right to have the daughter in marriage, and so. Moses spent 40 years as a shepherd next to Jethro. And it's like, maybe this was kind of a, again, going back to his heritage of this is how you marry. But what I find also interesting is that notice that Moses was not really accepted by his own people. He was only accepted by foreigners. Mm, Yeah. Yes. Oh, I wonder who else experienced something like that. (laughs) That's right. I mean, we see this unlikely, uh, unlikely hero, I guess. I, I hate to use that word because it's so connected to to uh, <laughs> to either Greek myths or to uh, to fiction. But we have this unlikely uh, savior 
of the people who's going to redeem them and born under un- unusual circumstances. He comes and he redeems his people uh, and he's rejected by his own and accepted by those. I mean, obviously God knows what he's doing because we see in Moses uh, a, a type, but really a foreshadowing of Jesus. Exactly. And that's, that's what I was thinking about when I looked at this too. It's like he was such a foreshadowing of Jesus and that he was rejected by his own. Um, he brought salvation and, and his own did not receive him. You know, it's like you have this, this, and of course, that's why, you know, you saw Moses at the transfiguration um, mm-hmm. because he was, he was connecting the law and the gospel. I mean, the law and the prophets with Jesus on that, on that mountain of transfiguration. So you see that, that type of Jesus in Moses's life. Uh, you know, we see here too just a an example of what it means uh, to uh, to live out our lives trusting in God, knowing that He has it all planned out. You started the show with the with the depiction of you know God looks into the long term, and then you brought up just now you know these three forty year periods of His life. Uh, he is a, a fugitive for forty years, but he's he's just living his life day by day trusting in the Lord. And we see here another example. Do you think that uh, when he says Jethro, the priest of Midian, do you see that as a, a follower of Yahweh, of a different faith? Uh, how, how do you fit that into the equation? Yeah, I, it's hard to tell because we don't have the enough knowledge to know, but he, but he had something because he was a, he gave Moses wonderful advice when Moses was coming to lead his people. When the, when the people came out, I remember the, the the conversation. Moses trying to do too much, and he's frustrated with the people. And and Jethro gives this wonderful advice: is like, why are you doing? Why are you why are you taking on the burdens of all these people yourself? Um, and he tells Moses to, to appoint elders. And, and and I love that picture of Jethro being a godly man who understood that there's someone outside of you that's bigger than you. And, and I, I like to believe that it's because he was a follower of Yahweh, because it helps us to understand the, the perspective of knowing that we are not the most important thing, but we are all part of God's overall plan. And we just play a small role in God's long-term crockpot history. <laughs> yeah, crockpot history. I love that. Well, we see here that Zipporah, her name, means bird, which is a nice name. But Gershom, which is the name that they gave the son, uh, her and Moses' son, has a little bit more significance to it. You know, it's from the Hebrew verb garash, which means, you know, to to drive out. And we just saw that where the shepherds came and they tried to, well, they did drive away the the women at the well. Uh, Moses was driven out by his own deeds, but also upon the threat of getting in trouble in Egypt. And then when Moses then confronts Pharaoh, you know, he's going to use this same kind of language. Um, The Lord says to Moses in six, you know, now you shall see what I'll do to Pharaoh for with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. Uh, And we see that over and over again, that same kind of language of driving out um, so the, the text here says uh, he named him Gershom because I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, but with the name literally mean, meaning being driven out. You know, it's also a very typical thing for prophets to either be ordered by God to name their children uh, after either incidents, good or bad, or in this case, uh, the child itself is a reminder 
of where he's from and how he got where he's where he got. And and he doesn't know it yet, but God's going to be driving him back. And and we look forward to that one's going to be tomorrow. Yeah, and I, and I love the fact that he spent those 40 years as a shepherd in the desert because God was preparing him for the 40-year journey with the Israelites in the desert. And he knew how to handle that. Imagine having grown up in a palace and all of a sudden now you're called to lead people in an, in an area you're not familiar with. But he intimately understood desert life and desert circumstances. So he was able to aptly tell the people who had been in captivity for 400 years and only knew one thing, one little area, it's going to be okay. I've lived here. I've done this. And to be able to guide them the way God would have them guided. So I think that's also an important piece in his life as well. Oh, yeah. And that just sparks my mind, too, about other connections that I haven't thought of before. And one is, you know, he growing up in the palace, he has no idea how to shepherd sheep or any <laughs> other or any other animal. So he's being trained by his now father-in-law to shepherd these sheep. And for 40 years, he's being trained to be a shepherd, which, of course, God is going to call him to do to shepherd his people. And, and that shepherd imagery is so key to everything that God does, because even if you go back to, and you're going to get to this, of course, later on, but the kings, they were never designed to be rulers. They were designed to be shepherds. Right. And the best kings that, that Israel had were those who were shepherds as opposed to those who were farmers, because they knew how to gently guide and lead God's people realizing that they served the good shepherd uh, and that they were to just be there to kind of protect the people of God. Well, because God was the one one who's still in charge of all of this. We have just a few verses left and we just have a few minutes left in our episode. So I'm going to read those and I think they're going to be a great way to end our uh, study of this section. It's going to be verses 23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Okay. Before we even get to the amazing way it ends with God knew, uh, God remembered his covenant. I mean, it's not as though he had forgotten, right, brother? Right, exactly. <laughs> so so how, he, yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, I just love how we sometimes think that God is be reminded of his promises. It's like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no, it does God forget his promises. It's just a, an acknowledgement that God had in the back of his mind always what he was going to do. And this is just a fulfillment of the promise that God already knew how he was going to do it and when he was going to do it. The fact that he saved Moses was God remembering his promise the day Moses was born and God preparing him his entire life to do this Exodus event was God remembering his promises. This is just an affirmation of something that God already had in mind to do in advance anyway. Psalm 105 verse 8 says, he remembers his covenant forever. Uh, verse 42 of the same psalm, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. In 106.45, for their sake he remembered his covenant and relented. The word here, the Hebrew word, zakar, it, it's, it, it's about not just sort of, oh yeah, I remember. It's about 
responding to the memory, responding, taking action based on something that has been already set in motion. So him remembering it, I don't know, I think maybe even the word, not that I'm a, a Hebrew translator, but you know, he, re, he, re, he responded to the covenant that he had already made or something. But yeah, it is more than just sort of, oh, it popped into his head. Yeah. But he leaves that and God knew. What do you make of that, brother? I mean, it sounds so, I don't know, it sounds so uh, powerful. Yeah, it's, it goes back to, you know, even the the name of Moses' son, Gershom. God knew he was going to make Pharaoh cast his people out. And he prepared them for the long journey ahead because he heard their suffering, he heard their pain, and it moved him to do something, to fulfill the promise he made to Abraham. And to me, that's just a powerful reminder that when we're dealing with our, our the tough things in our life, God remembers, God hears, God heart, God's heart breaks, and God responds to our pain. We may not see the events that as, as, as totally as God does, but God never forgets us and leaves us in the middle of that. He, he always has a plan for us. I think that's a great place to end it today. We're at the end of our time together. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Keith Haney, Assistant to the President for Missions, Human Care, and Stewardship in the LCMS Iowa District West. Thank you, Pastor, so much for being on the show. I hope to have you on again. My pleasure. I'd love to. Thank you, too, dear listener, for tuning in to Thy Strong Word. I've been your host, Pastor Phil Boo. Tomorrow, we'll continue in Exodus with the account of the burning bush and God's call for Moses to be his prophet. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word.